We all know the saying, what got you here won't get you there. But sometimes we need reminding what to stop doing in our careers when it no longer serves us well. Today, I'm speaking to Sally Helgeson, author of How Women Rise, Break the 12 Habits Holding You Back. We're talking about those habits and how breaking them can accelerate our success. Hi, this is Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a conversation about how we navigate our careers, our organizations, our lives as women leaders. Exploring its challenges, learning from others, sharing best practice, an opportunity to step out of the fray for a bit, to help you tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. I'm delighted today to have with me Sally Helgeson. Sally is a best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. Her mission for 30 years has been to help women around the world recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. Her book, How Women Rise, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, is what we're going to be focusing on today. A very warm welcome, Sally. Thank you so much, Penny. It's wonderful to be here. Listen, Sally, I'm wondering if we could start with your telling me your story and what led to the book's creation. Yes, certainly. Um, I have, as you said, my mission for 30 years has been helping women and uh, leaders and aspiring leaders all over the world uh, to get clear about their greatest strengths. And starting about 2012, I began delivering a workshop. I think I premiered it in Singapore because I do it through books, through articles, and through workshops and seminars. So this, um, this particular workshop had a big, long section on being more intentional in your career development. And in order to um, have some good material for that, I began using my co-author, Marshall Goldsmith's book, wonderful book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, about the behaviors that get in the way of successful people. And the template that Marshall set forth in that book, I think is particularly strong. The idea there is that the very same behaviors that serve you early in your career can begin to become problematic and get in your way as you move to a higher level. So I I really resonated with that template, but I found that some of the behaviors that Marshall focused on in that book were not particularly problematic for a lot of women, and that a lot of the problems that indeed did get in women's ways, a lot of the habits that got in women's ways, were not in that book. For example, Marshall, I think one of the first behaviors was learn to apologize. Now, we all know women who can barely open the door without (laughs) saying, I'm sorry. I see it all the time. I do it myself. Uh, So that wasn't much of a problem. He had behaviors like, don't talk all the time about how great you are. Well, again, very few women can really check that box. So um, I began, you know, really having an awareness of this. And after a couple of years, I suggested to Marshall, who's been a friend and colleague for the last 25 years, you know, we should collaborate together on a book for women about the behaviors that are most likely to get in women's ways. Uh, The idea being not that these are behaviors that only women exhibit, but that these are the behaviors that tend to be most problematic for women and holding them back. And we like the idea of doing a book uh, for women on things they could control rather than everything being cultural and structural and, you know, what needed to change in the larger workplace. But you know, what work you can do that's within your control on yourself that may help you to achieve 
more power, more influence, uh, so that you can affect the direction of the culture and structure and also create greater, um, you know, a, a better career path for you. Yeah, I think that's what really struck me with your book, uh, Sally, is that a lot of the advice or the lot of information women get about their careers and how to navigate them don't really uh, deliver as strong a punch as this did about we actually have the ability to change how we respond to situations and that it's that there's a no victim thing to your book, which is very, very powerful. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, that's what we were aiming for. Um, so if we look through, I know we don't have time to go through all of the habits today, but if we look through um, some of them, the, uh, starting from the top, reluctance to claim your achievements, expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your contributions, overvaluing expertise, building, not leveraging relationships, failing to enlist allies, putting your job before your career. I know today we're going to focus on a couple of those, which is the reluctance to claim your achievements and others noticing. Um, and as well, the other six were very interesting, I thought. Putting your job before your career, the perfection trap, the disease to please, minimizing too much, ruminating, letting your radar distract you. We're going to talk about perfection and um, minimizing and too much. But I think the yes. difference that's coming across today are these are different to building new habits. What we're talking about is stopping habits that might have served you well in the past, but don't any longer? That's exactly right. I mean, there is, the last section of the book really has a good template, lots of advice for substituting different behaviors. But the most important first step is really identifying the behaviors that may be getting in your own way and bringing them to conscious awareness so that you can begin practicing behaviors that serve you better. Okay, let's look at the habit of reluctance to claim your achievements. What's the issue here for women? I think the, the, the primary issue is that many women will often, whenever they receive any kind of affirmation about the work they've done, they will immediately default to say, just saying, oh, it was my team, or oh, it was my co-worker, or, or attributing the credit rather than necessarily even just sharing it. We seek a balance. A good, there's a good balance between I and we that's important for people to have. Mm. But when it becomes uh, a, a standard default um, way of responding that you're always putting the credit off onto somebody else, mm -hmm. uh, then you really lose the capacity you know, to articulate what your contribution is. Uh, we have a wonderful example in the book about a woman she was the head of a small nonprofit uh, here in the U.S., and she was uh, co-chairing a big uh, fundraiser with a fellow in her city who was the head of a much larger uh, nonprofit. And when she was interviewed by the uh, local newspaper about it, she talked constant, uh, exclusively about what he had done because she felt that they'd had a very strong relationship. But when he was interviewed, he also talked exclusively about what he had done. So the entire article, when it came out, was focused on him. And she felt really bad about that. Uh, she felt like, well, he, he wasn't very generous. Um, but she was surprised to find that her board, she's the head of a nonprofit, was very displeased that she had given all the credit away. So yeah. it's the kind of behavior that may have served her earlier, being a very generous person 
often in terms of spreading praise. But when she was representing an organization, it wasn't really appreciated. So I think it's a it's a good behavior. You know, again, finding that balance between talking about I and talking about we is important. But talking about we exclusively or giving the credit away will not serve you. So what's behind women's tentativeness about talking about their skills and experience? Well, I think there's a fear of being criticized um, uh, as selfish or as uh, being self-promoting or as being, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, too ambitious. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And that that will often make women almost proactively back off from assessing and articulating what they have. Uh, contributed. I often hear women say only men can get away with, you know, taking credit for things. Right. And whether that's true or not, (laughs) never trying to do it will not, will not change things. So Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're almost proactively discouraged from uh, taking credit or, or trying to assure that, that you are credited for what you actually contributed. Uh, for what you actually contribute. If you do that proactively, we'll never change things. Yeah, so what's the consequence of women staying tentative or, or staying stuck in that habit of not talking about their achievements? Well, I think the primary consequence is nobody really knows what you contribute. Uh, so you, you, you really don't do yourself uh, any favors by that. Um, uh, you know, again, that that example that I just gave of the woman at the nonprofit, uh, the consequences for her was that her her board kind of lost faith in her ability to represent their interests. So, again, as you move higher, as you have more responsibility, as you have have a greater span of control, you're going to it's going to be the consequences will be higher for you mm. if you cannot be clear about what you contributed. So how might women market themselves internally without it feeling like they are showing off? Well, you know, to, to talk about that, let's let's go to the next behavior, because I think that's where where the answer to it really lies. So this is around expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your contribution. So this is, again, you know, a number of women we know said, well, you know, why didn't they know I wanted that? Um, why didn't I realize I, you know, I wanted that promotion? How come they didn't come and tap me on the shoulder? Is this what you're talking about here? This is exactly what I'm talking about. I, I've, 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 over the years, I've heard this over and over. Uh, remember, recently I interviewed a woman who was at a, a very prestigious law firm, and uh, she had made partner later than the male cohort that she had entered the firm with. And um, she was getting ready. She was so discouraged. She was getting ready to leave the firm and and go out and work for a client. And when she mentioned to her boss that she uh, was probably going to be leaving or to her practice had, he said, what would it take to, to keep you? What about if we made you partner? And she said, well, yes, that would. And he said, great. I, I didn't know you wanted to be partner. Wow. And yeah. she thought, well, you know, I've been working myself to the bone year after year. Uh, why wouldn't he think uh, I wanted to make partner? And he said, you know, these, 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 uh, you know, men that entered your cohort, they were talking about making partner from day one. They made it very clear what they wanted. And uh, he said, we, we hadn't heard you say that. So we didn't, we didn't really know that that's what 
um, what you wanted. So I think that there's a sometimes women happy. And, you know, today in the workplace, people are really, really busy mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily notice what others are doing again in, in the book on this on this behavior expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your contribution we have a wonderful story about a woman i worked with who was a young engineer out in silicon valley and she she felt like one of her great strengths as an engineer was that she was more outgoing uh, and had more connections than a lot of her colleagues and yet when she went away on and got her performance review on a retreat, her, her new boss, who didn't know her that well, said, well, I think your work is superb, but you need to be more connected in the organization. And she felt shocked and terrible that that he didn't, you know, didn't see her as a connector when that's how she saw herself. Mm-hmm. It took her a couple of weeks of of you know, feeling bad about that before she thought, well, wait a minute, how would he know? I, I never told him. He doesn't monitor my emails. He doesn't see who comes in and out of my office. Uh, so she began a plan of, of, of letting him know every single week, just sending a two-line email saying, you know, this week I connected with so-and-so, just the names, nothing more, you know, not taking up time, just saying, just putting it out there. And at the end of a couple months, he came up to her and he said, that's great information. It's information I need to know. It helps me understand who my unit is, is connecting with in terms of customers, in terms of people in the, within the organization, very broadly said, important information. And, um, and I think, you know, there's a real great lesson in that. And that is, you know, women will often frame it almost as an either or. Either I expect people to notice what I'm doing or... I'm like the worst jerk around this entire company who talks nothing about who yeah. talks about nothing except what he's doing. And there's plenty of room in the middle. And one of the strongest places in the middle is really being someone who looks at providing information and 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 uh, about what you're doing, about what contributions are. Who looks at that as information that other people need? And and what I find is that women who who have reluctance around self-promotion or talking about themselves and their contributions is that when they start thinking of that as information that's valuable to other people, uh, they can find a more spontaneous, authentic, and appropriate way of doing it like that engineer uh, in Silicon Valley. Very interesting. So instead of it, you know, to reframe it, so instead of it looking just like uh, it's just all about me, um, you know, I'm showing off. I want you to know how great I am. And as you say, everyone's got examples that they've seen people in organizations going, I don't want to be that person. So advocating for yourself uh, is not necessarily purely just about me, but it can be about good information. What's, what's the value I bring this organization and how many people know about it? Yes, exactly, Penny. It's not an either or. It's not either you keep your mouth shut or... Um, you're you're a total pain. There's there's a huge place in the middle. You just need to need to find that yeah. and to do that, as you say, with integrity and with authenticity. So maybe being a bit playful around the middle middle ground, the spectrum around how that how, getting that to work for you. Um, that is, is exactly right. Lightening yeah. up a bit about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Sally, we talked as well about uh, the perfection trap in your book. Really interesting, you know, striving to be perfect certainly can get women ahead 
and many will talk about the reason that they have got promoted and got ahead in their jobs in their first and second and third management role is that they have been really, really technically expert and really, really good at their jobs. But how might that get in the way as women step into more senior leadership roles? Well, what we learned when we were doing some background research on this was very interesting. There was a major coaching sort of psychometric profile study that was done that showed that within organizations, women tend to be um, rewarded for being precise and correct. Mm. And men tend to be rewarded for being bold and strategic. And what's interesting about this is that precision and correctness are very important as you're coming up. But at the most senior levels, boldness and strategic thinking, often known as having a big vision, are considered more important. And being seen as precise and correct can get you tagged as having a a narrow vision and only being an expert, a subject matter expert, rather than a superb manager. So so the very um, behavior that is helpful, that precision and correctness to women early on uh, can begin to get in their way. But I think there's another thing um, that's really important to consider because so many women put themselves under a, a, a heavy burden of trying to be perfect and being very critical of, of any mistakes they make. That That's what leads to that later behavior we have, rumination. And in fact, Marshall Goldsmith, who's been a coach for you know 35 years, says he has never worked, never worked with a woman ever, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, CEO, doesn't matter, where he hasn't at some point had to say, please don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah. So that, that perfectionism women expect from themselves um, can be quite, um, quite deeply rooted. But the other reason it gets in, in your way um, more and more as you move higher is that it creates a lot of stress. Uh, it's not fun trying to be perfect. Um, it's not a very relaxed way of inhabiting your life. And uh, so it, you create stress for yourself, but you also create stress for other people. I have, I've been doing what I've been doing 30 years. I've never heard one person say, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. Yeah. No one says that. It creates stress on your team. Yeah. And, you know, talking to... Um, talking to selection committees that are looking at candidates for the highest positions in organizations, one of the things I often hear them say is, you know, we want people who other people won't feel a lot of stress working with. You know, we we want to create, you know, good relationships. Now, I'm not saying they always find that with the males that they select, but uh, there's there's no advantage for women uh, in going into that, um, that kind of selection pro- process, being known as someone who's, who's hard to work for because your standards are so high. And, and even when your people say, you know, she's harder on herself than she is on us, it's still, she's hard on everyone. Yeah. So, so that's a very good behavior to let go of. Very interesting, and also just uh, just the sheer exhaustion of uh, of keeping those high standards. You know, we also talk about the sort of bandwidth that uh, women have to do other things like visibility raising, letting other people know about what they're doing, networking, etc. When they are so uh, driven by and consumed by 
the standards that they're setting themselves, which, as you say, often have the unintended consequence of not making them great people to work for. Do you think this is exactly is this particular to women, the perfection trap, or do you see it relevant to everyone stepping from being a technical expert to a leader? I think that that can be common, and I think it's hard to step from a, a technical uh, expert role to a, a leadership role, yes, in general. But I will tell you this. I would say the biggest surprise to me uh, with publishing this book has been the number of men who have said, I identify strongly with some of these behaviors. Wow. What I've come to believe is that these are not women's behaviors. They are human behaviors but they are most likely for various reasons, some of them cultural, to get in women's way and hold them back. That said, I do think that a couple of the later behaviors, including this perfection trap, um, can can be more of a problem for women partly because of just the expectations put on girls. Um, You know, when in school, in terms of sports, what's expected, uh, I think that it can be more, more rigorous and a little more punishing for, for girls. There, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, sort of an adorable bad girl, but, you know, our culture definitely has space for the uh, adorable bad boy. So, so girls get more penalized early for uh, any kind of misbehavior. And I think that that, that leads them to this, this idea of, you know, I have to be perfect. And then again, you know, the fact that women are more rewarded for precision and correctness early in their career. So I think that all those things combine to, yeah. to make that a tough lift. And so we've talked about the very powerful um, cultural and uh, social context within which women are uh, developing their leadership identity. Let's talk about minimizing because you give yeah. some really powerful examples in the book of how women and men take up space. And I'm wondering if you can expand on on minimizing behavior and what that might look like. Yeah, exactly. And minimizing behavior can be either physical, that is shrinking your actual physical self to try to take up space. And women often do this to show other people that to, to in an effort to make other people welcome. I became really aware, and then their verbal issues, which we'll talk about in a moment, but I became first vividly aware of this physical um, difference, this different way of inhabiting space when I was uh, participating in a, a board meeting in New Orleans. A lot of people were late. There was about half women, half men there. There were about 20 people and the room was too small. So people were coming in late. And what I, it was fascinating to notice that as people came in late and all the seats were taken up, the women, I mean, virtually to a woman, would signal the newcomer, there's plenty of room for you by you know, tucking a purse under her chair, scooching back in her chair, um, moving over to make room. So often, a couple times, actually getting up and going to the back of the room to leave a chair for the other person, which, you know, was very nice. But the men in the room, you know, some of whom were a little bit spread out and, you know, had a briefcase in one place and an arm over a chair and, you know, legs crossed or whatever, um, they didn't change their physical uh, behavior or give cues of welcome at all. And I found that pretty fascinating. And uh, afterwards, I was talking um, about it with a, a, a man there who was, I knew was a, a psychologist who had some 
some background in in physical behavior and cues. And I mentioned it to him and he said, yeah, he said, you know, he said, I think that at bottom, the men are sort of signaling, you know, I believe you're a grown up and you can find your own space. And oh, by the way, you were late and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Whereas the women were trying to equalize everything. And I think on one hand, you know, I'm not advocating that that women should spread themselves out and, you know, put a, a, a leg over a, you know, put drape an arm over another chair and take up too much room at all. And I don't think that's a great physical behavior. But on the other hand, there's something about being so over, you know, so attentive to what everybody else's needs are that you end up sending the message, you know, I don't, I'm not really inhabiting my space. I'm, I'm glad to cede it to anyone who walks in. My concern with making other people comfortable is so vigilant. I'm so hypervigilant about that, mm-hmm. that I'm perfectly willing to, um, to shrink my own space. So I don't think it's a very, um, I don't think it's a very powerful way uh, to position yourself as a leader to, to do that physically or verbally. And verbally, um, we hear it a lot with women, you know, in a meeting, oh, I just have one thing, or I only have one point to make, or this will take just one second or something like that, prefacing what they're going to say with an apology, apology, either explicit or implicit, that, you know, invites the other person to think, well, that must not be that important if if the person making it can't stand behind it. So I think this is, um, you know, this is a really, on one hand, it's a very important behavior to address. On the other hand, it's pretty easy behavior to address. Habit. It's nothing more than a habit. It's just a form of communication that with little tweaking can easily be addressed. So becoming really conscious that that sort of minimizing and discounting behavior will will probably will convey uncertainty and, and will be undermining women's authority. Exactly. And that it's very difficult to create uh, or convey a leadership presence if you're sort of hyper alert to what everyone else is feeling and taking responsibility for Mm -hmm. that. Um, They're not children that are coming in a room. Um, If you're dealing with children, it's good to be hyper aware of what their needs might be. Um, but if you're an adult, you can, if they're adults, you can, you can hold your space. And I think holding your space is really, really important, um, for women and, uh, especially for younger women who tend to, I mean, I, I, I work with women of all ages. And whereas I see that much younger women, uh, seem to understand early that the need to articulate what they've contributed and, and, and speak up in order to get credit, that they really still struggle with minimizing in a way that diminishes them, it's tone of voice, it's all kinds of things like that. And so is that, again, the cultural and social double bind that women are likely to believe they will be penalized for being too direct? I think that that, that that can play a role in it, uh, definitely. And, and certainly there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the double bind in a way that, you know, can be almost paralyzing mm. so that we feel like, well, there's nothing, you know, I'm a, I, I'm, you know, I can't win if I do, I can't win if I don't. I don't think that's that helpful. Um, but I think, again, with minimizing, I think a lot of it isn't 
it's not really rooted in psychology or social attitudes. It's rooted in habit. And, um, and that it, if it's addressed as a habit, it's, it's much easier uh, to reverse that. Yeah. In your book, Sally, um, you reference the overlapping and flip side habits. Can we talk about too much? Take us through too much as a habit. Yeah, too much is really too much emotion, uh, too many words, too much disclosure. Mm -hmm. And I've watched this um, often, and but even more have heard from women who are in leadership positions and who are trying to coach and mentor other women that one of the ways in which women uh, fall into a communication problem is by offering too much information and not being concise enough in a meeting. You know, they'll say, well, here's the background, or this is how it came up with this idea, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of organizations, there's a very concise and crisp tone that is expected, especially at a leadership level. Doesn't mean you, you're not being a warm person, but just being a concise person who's thought through in advance how you're going to frame something. And I think women can can without intending it come off as not being that aware of that when they're giving too much background. One thing I've found and, and with the women I've worked with, much more effective than saying, well, here's how I came up with that idea and starting it. By, by simply stating the idea and then saying afterwards, if you're interested in how I came up with that idea, glad to share that with you at some point. That 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 really respects the other person's time, but I think is more intriguing than going off on a long tangent um, about uh, you know how you came up with an idea. And I remember working, I did some work with a big pharmaceutical, a global pharmaceutical, and when I talked, interviewed the woman there who had the highest uh, operational. Uh, position in the whole global company. One of the questions I asked her, what's been most responsible for your success? And she said, the fact that I am so concise. Right. She said, I had to learn that as a position in practice. And that got me immediate buy-in. She said, so one of the things I've made myself is a coach for women here who struggle with that because a lot of them do. Very interesting. So what would you, so too much motion, too many words, too much disclosure. Take me through the yeah. too much disclosure. Well, I think that too much disclosure comes very naturally uh, for women because women tend to bond uh, with one another over a sort of exchange of often fairly intimate or detailed information about themselves. And they expect that. And men often don't. I mean, I, you know, I've asked my husband, he's playing golf with a close friend who's in the middle of a divorce and I'll say, you know, how's the divorce going? They say, oh, we didn't talk about that. Really? You know, you're on the golf course for four hours with your best friend and he's getting a divorce. What'd you talk about? Well, you know, we talked about the game. Okay. Interesting. But, you know, men don't necessarily bond over a lot of personal information. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. Over a lot of disclosure. So I think, you know, we can get in the habit of doing that um, in situations where, again, it may have served us well early in our careers because it's made us perceived of as a, a warm uh, person who's popular and other people like and can trust and who other people talk to. Um, but at a leadership level, too much disclosure, you know, can be perceived of as, you know, what am I supposed to do with this information or, you know, to some degree inappropriate or wanting to be liked too much by subordinates. So, um, so it's a, you know, again, a really simple 
habit that once you have brought it to conscious awareness and given some thought to how this might be impacting you, it's not it's not a tough one to uh, to adjust to. Becoming conscious of it and too much emotion. Uh, too much emotion is, is I think, just speaking before you've had a chance to uh, process. Now, men do this too. Mm. Men do this too. Um, this is something you find in the workplace. When men tend to speak with too much emotion, it's often anger. When In the workplace, I'm talking about. When women speak with too much emotion, it's often hurt. Um, the woman uh, that I talked about, the uh, engineer in Silicon Valley who figured out that she had never bothered to let her boss know that she was well connected. Uh, she said, you know, the first three weeks before I figured that out, I felt very, very hurt. And I, I shared it, you know, with other people in the organization, how misunderstood I felt and how bad I felt and, you know, how he didn't value me and didn't recognize what I contributed. She said, and I, I later really, I later really regretted that. So what in my observation and the work I've done over the years that's what I see is that women will often communicate uh, in a way that, that doesn't really serve their interests at, from a place of, of hurt or feeling, feeling undervalued and uh, better to sort of figure out what that's about. Um, certainly bent about it with somebody that you're extremely close to, preferably, uh, you know, that you don't work with and then find a way to address it. Okay, so what would you say to women, Sally, who might comment, well, how can I be authentic when everything mm. that comes naturally to me is either too much or not enough? Well, I think that um, be, that in instances where you're too much or not enough, it's often unawareness that brings you there. It's not that that is a deep inner expression of who you are. You know, if your radar is going every minute and you're trying to signal how, you know, figure out how to make everybody else in the room comfortable while minimizing your own right to claim a space, that's not, you know, I don't think there's a big argument that that's deeply authentic. I would say it's a learned behavior that's not really serving you. So I don't see that navigating these two communication traps over too much and minimizing really is is um, creates problems with being inauthentic, but more with just um, uncovering unconscious uh, behaviors that that aren't necessarily an authentic, deeply authentic part of who you are. They're just they're just learned habits that you yeah. haven't addressed. Yeah. So how might women approach changing their autopilot if it's not serving them well, or if they determine that there are some of these habits that are not serving them well? How would they approach it? Well, two things. First, I think is 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 um, bringing to conscious awareness what gets in your way. Then deciding, okay, I've seen I've seen you know three things that are you know really kind of problematic for me here, and I hear this a lot from women. Oh, I identify with four or five of these behaviors, yeah. and then choosing one to start with. Don't get overwhelmed. Make your task doable by choosing either one behavior or just a part of a behavior. You know, if you feel like. A, uh, that 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 too much is a problem for you. You might just say, "I'm going to become more concise in the weekly meeting where I'm expected to present on X." So just choose one thing, make it easy, make it doable to start, and then, and this is the most important thing, enlist help in doing it. You cannot really change deeply embedded 
behaviors alone because you tend to lose awareness of them because you generally are acting on autopilot when you exhibit, when you act on these habits. So really asking other people to help in very specific, you know, bounded ways. So you're trying to be more concise. Say before you go into meetings, say to a couple of coworkers, hey, I'm trying to be more concise in my presentations. Could you just watch and see if you notice a difference here? Uh, or say, do you have any advice for me? Um, you could go to somebody beforehand and say, look, you're very concise in your presentations. I've always been impressed by that. Uh, I'm trying to work on that. Could you um, uh, could you give me a, a couple thoughts about uh, what do you do to prepare to be concise? Do you have any particular way of approaching that? You're trying to uh, get better at claiming your achievements. You can say to you know, a couple people, I'm trying to get better at this. I feel very self-conscious when I talk about what I've done. I feel like I'm sucking up all the air in the room and being inappropriate. Um, could you just give me a, you know, some observations or maybe you know, tips on how you do that in a good way? And this is, this is really powerful. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it, it really, it's kind of enlisting people around you to be coaches and mm -hmm. what it does is it it helps you keep an awareness what you're trying to change it it surfaces behaviors that you may not even be aware of acting on but also and this is so important it advertises the fact that you're changing yeah. we tend to get a reputation for being one way oh so and so can't speak up for herself then you start speaking up for yourself and guess what no one notices you are bringing other people's awareness by saying by articulating hey i'm trying to work on this then people will notice and oh boy penny's getting she's really you know i used to think she couldn't speak up but mm -hmm. but now she really seems able, comfortable doing that and you know so then you you start to get a reputation and perception Managing perception is a big part of this change too. You want people to to know. You want people to notice um, because that's going to serve you better. That's brilliant, Sally. Finally, any any advice you might have uh, generally for talented, ambitious women leaders? Yes, I would say don't cut yourself off at at the knees because you fear being tagged as ambitious. I was interviewing a woman as a psychiatrist uh, in Manhattan and most of the women she works with she's like insane amount uh, per hour most of the women she works with are either very high level in the finance sector or um, in law firms in New York City and she told me something that was astonishing she says I have almost never had a woman come into my office who doesn't start things off by saying I need you to know I'm not ambitious she said, what does that even mean? How do you get to be a partner in one of the top 10 law firms in the world without being ambitious? She sure. said, of course, you have to be ambitious to do that. It's just that women are so almost allergic to often the idea of being perceived of as that way and all the baggage that goes with that out for yourself, self-serving, mm. you know, eats nails for breakfast, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> it, 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 I think it's a good thing to get to let go of that fear and and recognize that you know your job is not managing the perception and the response of every single person around you your job is trying to act on the full scope of the talents 
you have been given so that you can, on one hand, create a satisfying, sustainable, energizing, and rewarding career for yourself so that you can contribute, make the greatest contribution to your organization, and also so that you can help change the game for women in terms of, uh, which is requires having some degree of power and influence. So if you can get comfortable with those ambitions, as it were, I, I would say that's, that's going to be all to the good. Sally, what a lovely note to end on. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Sally Helgeson, co-author of How Women Rise. Again, thank you so much, Sally. Such a pleasure to meet you. It's been a real pleasure, Penny. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. Join me for our next conversation coming soon, available on SoundCloud and iTunes. And stay in touch, Penny at pennydevolk.com.